This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to an episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. I just saw something this morning. It freaked me out about baldness. <laughs> I don't have a Did you look it's in a mirror? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I almost said a bad word. Um, <laughs> No, apparently, um, according to uh, Cheng Ming Chung from University of Southern California, which is in LA, if you haven't been there, it's not the best city in the world. Uh, It's got a great university. It's got a great airport. You know, get in, get out, (laughs) I say. Um, A lot of great great universities around that area. But um, he's been working on the idea that each hair follicle apparently goes through these cyclic seasons and they go through a phase where the, the stem cells of you know growth are sort of active and then they go through a dormant phase mm. and as, particularly in men <laughs> as you as you go through your years um the dormant phases get longer till uh, one day they just dormant. never wake up uh. and this can cause this is what causes baldness um but but apparently and this has only been done in mice i'm going to try it on my dog when i get home <laughs> But if you pluck a hair, then it's and you pluck enough of them, they they send out essentially, you know, an emergency signal to other hairs called CCL two, and it basically gets some of the others to wake up. Well, CCL two oh. is a chemical messenger that says, "Come here." Oh. You know, it's a it's a it's a chemokine that says, "Hey, everyone, come here, come here." So, sort of guides the way for cells. So that makes is, sense. This is counterintuitive for but most men out there. It's, but it's not though, because this is a, like an old wives' tale. Like if you have a baby that has really fine hair, yeah. people say, "Oh." shave it you know several times and, like, and then they'll grow back thicker and thicker and your hair will like the more you cut it the thicker it'll grow back like, they say it with leg hairs as well yeah like, you, know, you always talk so so this is <laughs> my experience <laughs> let's not get into waxing but um, maybe this is the science behind some yeah. of those theories but i challenge you to find a man losing their hair on the street and <laughs> encourage them to pluck out more of those hairs in the faint hope that some of the old ones will grow back <laughs> but maybe there's a ccl2 based intervention that could encourage well, more stem is, cells into the yes, region this that is might exactly where this is going, and this could be this this guy could end up a very wealthy man mm. um, because he's looking at not a pluck technique, but a a medication that might allow for um, exactly that to happen. A so. cellular cure for baldness. Mm. Wow. Bring it on. <laughs> Hurry up. <laughs> Dr. Crystal, what do you got for us? Well, I think a lot of people this week were excited to see the Brontosaurus is back. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminded me of a song. Sure. Bronto's back. <laughs> back again. <laughs> You Bronto's need to work back. on that, but it's a good start. Bronto's got back. No. Um, so, but I don't, are we sure? I, mean, I think this is a great story about how scientists come to decision-making. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's about consensus based on available evidence. It's about so, the reproduction of a whole other children's books. <laughs> and a lot of re- frantic relabeling in lots of museums. No, because when dinosaurs was, when these dinosaurs were first, the sauropods, the you know the big herbivores mm. with the big long necks and the big long tails, when they were first discovered back in the sort of late nineteenth century, it was during the middle of what they called the bone rush, where lots of um, fossil hunters were out there going, "I found a new one, I found a new one, I found a new one," and so there was you know somewhat you know sketchy details given about some of these new species. And so um, the Apatosaurus was discovered um, in uh, 1877, and um, then the Brontosaurus was discovered in 1879, and, you know, it was kind of like find and, you know, name it and go to the next one. Mm -hmm. And then during the sort of early 1900s, sort of about 20 years later, sort of researchers sort of found fossils that were similar to both and said, well, there's a lot in common here. Actually, based on the current evidence that we have, 
you know, we think these are the same dinosaur. Mm. And because convention said that whatever it's named first is the real name, mm. Apatosaurus won out. So it's mm. like there's no Brontosaurus, everything's an Apatosaurus. Do you know what amazes me, though? When you look at all the, the kids' books and so forth that we mm. had and we grew up with, mm. you didn't see Apatosaurus in there. No. no, and I think this is because Brontosaurus was one of the first um, displayed dinosaurs okay. and one of, one of the first full reconstructions in museums, and so it captured the public's imagination as a Brontosaurus, as, a, as the public figure of sauropods, mm. in a way that Apatosaurus just didn't. Mm. And, it, and is it true that the museums refused, like a few museums I was reading, refused to rename them? So they, even though there was a Brontosaurus there, they didn't go back and change the name? I, I think it's quite a controversial issue. Yeah, yeah. But but generally the general consensus was that, you know, according to most paleontologists that it was a patasaurus. It's not the Brontosaurus wasn't a valid taxonomic name until the PhD studies of Emmanuel Schopp, uh, who's a paleontologist from Spain, um, based in Lisbon, who basically went, well, let's go back and look at how all these fossils are classified. And he spent his PhD uh, going through all the museums of the world, finding, you know, dozens of specimens. You know, I think he looked at over 80 different skeletons and looked at almost 500 different bone characteristics and looked across the entire thing and said, well, what differences are there? And he's decided, he's concluded that there's at least a dozen distinct differences between the Apatosaurus samples and Brontosaurus samples as he grouped them to say that they're different enough to actually be different a genre. And some of these differences are about the fact that, you know, the most obvious one is apparently that the Apatosaurus has a bulkier kind of neck, like it's kind of a bit more more stoutier kind of neck. And, you know, the, the ankle bone's longer and the shoulder blade's rounder. And you might think, well, well that, what do those differences really mean? What does it matter? But you think, well, if you've got a slightly rounder shoulder blade or a slightly longer ankle mm. bone, maybe different muscles attach. Mm. Maybe there's mm. different... Maybe that changed the gait of the animal, such that yeah. if we could actually see a Brontosaurus and a Apatosaurus next to each other in real life with all the flesh on, you yeah. go, well, pff, of course they're different. They move differently. They do Tigers and lions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If you just had the skeletons, you might not be able to pick the difference. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. And so, so I think this is a great example of how new evidence and new analysis and new techniques generate new discussion and that mm-hmm. based on the current evidence available, scientists are actually able to sit back and say, oh, actually, no, we think now there is enough evidence to say that these are two different dinosaurs mm-hmm. or, or not. But I think it's a great example of how science isn't right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Science mm-hmm. is consensus position based on the evidence you've got available right now. Mm-hmm. It's not about being right. It's not about being wrong. It's about making the right, making the best you know, decision um, based on what evidence you've mm-hmm. got. And here's an example of where you know, positions change. And mm-hmm. let's hope in July we'll do it again for the former planet Pluto. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Because about... once we get that probe out there, we start mm-hmm. having a look, the pictures come back, people are going to go, holy crap, that's a planet. No, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's about yeah. having the right... And, and so we can see that story in multiple... You know, in, and, and you know, around environmental research as well. Mm. So you know, let's mm. let's 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 be very aware that science isn't about it right or wrong. Mm. Science is about you know the consensus based on the best available evidence. Mm. Indeed. Mm. Dr. Lauren. Well, that's actually a beautiful intro to what I wanted to talk about, actually, because it's that idea of, um, you know, I guess questions coming up about science. So this um, story came out this week uh, in the proceedings of the National Academy, looking at uh, basically why certain populations get taller. So it used to be that the USA was actually the tallest population in the world. I'm looking at you. I know. So, uh, so what drew you to this story, Lauren? <laughs> the fact that I could probably gain two feet. <laughs> Do you know, do you know uh, I, I was up in Hillsville during the week and uh, Lauren and her lovely husband, Jared, were nice enough to meet us for dinner. And she, at one point as we were leaving, said, geez, your son's getting taller. And I said, <laughs> from what perspective? <laughs> yeah, he's almost my height. It's quite depressing. <laughs> he's seven, folks. <laughs> Yeah. So this is obviously why anything that has height in the title draws my attention, oh, yeah. because yeah. I'm, I'm trying to find a cure for my shortness. <laughs> well, I don't think there's... N- now, careful there. 
because we can get ourselves in trouble over this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing to be cured. That's true. Yeah. You should know better. <laughs> the bell curve of diversity <laughs> says exactly. true. Thank you, Dr. Christopher. And it's very good for flying on long, long plane flights. Sure. I can curl up on the seat and be comfortable. So if you're, not, <laughs> if you're not getting taller, who is? So the people in Amsterdam are getting taller. Oh. So over the past 150 years, the, the average height of someone in Amsterdam has actually gained 20 centimetres, which is huge for, you know, 150 years. That's a big increase in height. Now... My first thought, which probably most people are thinking, is that that's probably just because our diets got better, the environments are better, you know, we're, we're you know, more um, wealthy than we used to be now, so all those things contribute to the height. But what about uh, immigration and genetic makeup? Are so, people just moving to Amsterdam who just happen to be from tall places? Well, that's an excellent question because basically what this what the study has found is that um, it isn't just to do with environments and diet and things like that. They actually think that it's a genetic thing and they're actually saying that it's um, evidence that we are still subject to natural selection. So what the study has found is that there are, so basically there are 180 genes that influence how tall you become. And they've found that in the population in Amsterdam, people that are taller tend to have more children. Now, where it gets really interesting, though, is, you know, it doesn't really explain why they have more children. So it might be that they, you know, attract a, a, a partner more easily. It, the other thing that they say in the paper is maybe it's that they get divorced quicker and then they have a second family. <laughs> so there's sort of two ends of the spectrum there, really. <laughs> um, but so there's, there's basically a lot of questions that have been thrown up by this. But in terms of an evolutionary perspective, they're more fit to pass on their genes, that's, basically. Yeah, so that's one of the theories. Yeah, exactly. And but the the interesting thing is that that's what happens in Amsterdam. But they've done similar studies in the US, and they actually find the complete opposite. So in the US studies, if you're shorter, you're more likely to have more children. Is that right? Yeah. So it's actually quite interesting because they're now saying, well, is it that that, that there is different sort of evolutionary pools in the two different countries, or is it that you know it's, it's completely you know completely environmental, completely diet related, and we're we're just missing it. Hmm. But it's, um, yeah, quite interesting. That's interesting stuff. I've got to say, no, I don't want to have a third. You're going for replacement. Yeah, Yeah, replacement. Mm -hmm. Mm. Hmm. Yes. People, we're we're still evolving. Yeah, we are. That's true. uh, Here's something interesting from the Peruvian capital of Lima. Mm -hmm. I like this. (laughs) This is a great story. Um, Up in Lima, Mm -hmm. um, in fact, problematic drought. You know, they are really Mm. in deep strife. Mm. And then there are other times where there's floods, you know, mm-hmm. that usual counterbalance between, um, between things in, in, in nature. Um, now, what uh, they've been thinking about doing, though, is building a new diesel plant, mm-hmm. which, you know, I mean, these things are quite controversial. Quite controversial. Yeah. If they're all solar-powered, which they generally are not, mm-hmm. um, you might be okay. But even if they are, you're, you're taking in seawater, and somewhere, usually a kilometre down the, down the beach, you're mm-hmm. dumping out this disgusting salt Intense fluid, brine, mm-hmm. um, that's not good for the environment. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's all bad. Um, now, what what they've actually uh, been doing though is there's there's a researcher named Bert de Bierbe from um, it's a company there actually he's a hydrologist and he's been looking at some of the the ancient pre-Inca canals. So you know the the Inca um, Empire was the great you know um, pre sort of um, American Colombian mm-hmm. sort of um, empire there. And, but there was a group there before them um, that built these canals through the region to redistribute water. Mm. Now, over time, these canals have sort of broken down and so forth, and they're, they're best considered now like a leaky sieve. You know, they don't really mm. work. Mm. But what this guy, um, Bert, has done is he's looked at what it would cost to essentially re-cement 
you know, the gaps in these canals that mm. were built to redistribute the water so that some of the natural springs and so forth that in the past have sort of filled up for a period could be filled for longer and supply water to Lima over a protracted period rather than just that sort of flood period. And apparently the, um, the cost of doing this is one hundredth of the cost of a new diesel plant. Hmm. And it will take care of something like 60% of the water deficit uh, during the dry period. So this is not an insignificant, you know, fun project. Mm. This is taking these sort of, you know, ancient canals, repairing them and saying, well, you know, this worked for a much smaller population, obviously, back mm. then. Who had far less access to tools. Than far less yeah, access to yeah. tools and engineering concepts yeah. and you know, I'm not sure if hydrologists were around 1,500 years ago, but, you know, that type of technology. Yeah. And say, well, what if we then had a look at them now, re-engineered them, repaired them, Mm. and redistributed the water to these locations based on this? And this is the work he's been doing. And, I mean, these things are, you know, they were done by um, the the Wari culture, which was about uh, 1,500-odd years ago. They Mm. they built these these canals. So it'd it'd be like rebuilding a Roman canal system in Europe. Exactly, exactly. It's amazing they're still going. Well, I mean, as I said, they don't really work yeah, now because yeah. they're, if you think about them, they're, they're all these sort of channels, yep. but all these channels have gaps in them, them. so they, they, they just leak. Yeah. But but if they so re-cemented them, and, and you know, cement back then mm. and cement today, two mm. different things. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's easy to produce this stuff now. And so they believe that, you know, essentially re-grouting these surfaces um, would allow them to redistribute water as per their original purpose, which I think would just be an amazing mm. feat of engi- engineering, um, natural, history. natural resource management. Yeah, resource resource management is already there and they, they're pretty sure that if they do this they won't actually need to build the diesel plant which I think would be an extraordinary mm, outcome. Mm. Um, so it, we'll watch this space but um, it could be a way to solve Lima's uh, big problems in water because apparently they are I mean we hear a lot about the Californian Think about problems. that when you're eating your quinoa. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm serious. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think this is something that um, if we see this uh, there should be more of this sort mm. of stuff where we're looking at the, at the whole picture mm. not just one quick dirty solution and I, I do use the word dirty. I hope that happens in the future. It's a, it's a great idea, isn't it, to think, you mm. know, in 1,500 years, the technology that we're working on now, maybe they're going to try and rebuild that. I think it's more likely they'll go, what the hell were they doing? <laughs> they were really stupid Why would then. they have done that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they may, you know, there could be a few things, you know, but uh, that's just they're not going to look favourably about much of our stuff. Not right. the iPhone. We're going to go to a break. Uh, we have a few guests today, folks. We'll be back in uh, just a moment talking about some cool science. Uh, you're on 3 R. This is Einstein and Gogo. Three triple R. Now, we are joined in the studio by a guest that Dr. Lauren has uh, very thoughtfully... Uh, dragged in. Dragged in. Oh, oh, <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to turn Lauren's microphone on, but okay. Oh, you can hear me then. Bummer. Um, <laughs> we have Emily Rochette, who is from Melbourne Girls College. Welcome, Emily. How are you going? Good, thank you. Now, you are doing some really interesting work, um, I guess in particular on young women, but looking at how people use social media, looking at how science and technology is taught and learned, tell us a bit about that, that adventure you're on. Um, well, I think STEM is a, is a buzzword at the moment in education, mm. and that, all it stands for is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And my interest really lies in how to integrate technology and 
and getting kids to sort of realize how they can be subject-based leaders in the sciences through technology. Uh, for example, they use Facebook all the time, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested in how they're using it as, far, as part of uh, formal education. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's something... I, I thought uh, Facebook was something you had to be 18 for. <laughs> I mean, aren't these, aren't these things sort of frowned upon in schools at the moment, or are they being used? Oh, that's a... Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. So um, when I was in Boston, I found that there are really two camps to this. There's mm-hmm. some people who are very afraid of using social media because they feel that, oh, the kids might you know, do something or get involved with people that are not that great for them. Um, there has been a lot of work on uh, how uh, teens in general use social media. If you're really interested, there's a great book by Dana Boyd called It's Complicated, The Social Lives of Network Teens. Um, and on the other hand, there's people who are interested in using it to develop children's agency with learning, okay. and yep. that's the camp that I really fall into. So, so, what, so what do you mean by agency? Mm. Um, I guess the power to act autonomously. So let's say um, you know, you're know you in my class and you say, uh, listen, Mr. Shet, I'm just really not feeling it with what we're studying in biology at the moment. I sort of get all this. I might say to you, well, why don't we try MOOC? And what a MOOC is is a massively open online course. You might be involved in studying um, something you're really interested in with 28,000 other people, and potentially you could meet people there that really inspire you to go on in your scientific endeavors. It's been a few years now, but I remember when I used to teach first-year physics, often, you know, 300 students in the class, so there'd always be a few that would come up and ask a question at the end about something they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. I would never try and give them my explanation again. I would always say, look, I'll send you some links to some other explanations on the web. Mm. Have a look at those. One of them may gel with you. If it doesn't come back to me, and I have to say, a hundred percent of the time, it worked. I mean, is this the sort of thing that you're doing with that? Are you giving them access to different ways of thinking, different ideas, so that they can they can find the version that suits them? Because our teaching's always been very unidirectional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly for us, us older folks who went through it. Yeah. Absolutely. And another big word in education at the moment is differentiation. Mm-hmm. So, how do we, um, you know, not sort to of... do with mess though? No, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, you know, so how do we get the students to see what their potential is and, and get them to increase their potential, you know? Mm. Um, and I, I look at uh, using technology in that kind of way. So you might say to me, well, why aren't we studying something like geology in more depth? That's typically one part of the, the sciences that is, I guess, sort of underrepresented Absolutely. when you compare it to mm. physics, biology, chemistry. Mm. Um, and I might say, oh, well, okay, you're interested in that? Well, what can we do for you to get you to, to integrate that more and, and to sort of help you out with that? Hmm. Emily, one thing that jumps to mind is, uh, you know, obviously class sizes are getting larger and our teachers are under a lot of pressure as it is already. Do you think it adds extra work for the teachers to be doing these sort of extra, you know, social media types of things? Or is it something that all teachers could be including? I reckon uh, as far as integrating technology goes in STEM subjects, there's something that all teachers can offer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether it's social media, maybe that's something that, teachers might want to experiment with but i think you know just like we tell the kids when they go home turn off your facebook stop with the twitter before you're going to bed mm. we have to realize that too that you know there is a a place for it in formal mm. education but at the same time it's not like i'm spending you know hours and hours on social media with my kids until 2 a.m or something like that mm-hmm. it's about sort of knowing when to say here's something for you mm. and we're gonna i'm gonna move on and hopefully you can work that out mm-hmm. so, so when you talk about social media um are there like versions of facebook or twitter that are sort of closed systems for the use, use in schools or do you use the available open 
tools? I use a website called Edmodo, which is sort of called the Facebook for education, and it's very closed. Um, I'm partially concerned about safety. For example, in uh, Boston, when I was there, I was talking to a principal who said, when you use social media, you're using developed technologies for underdeveloped minds. And mm. that really uh, hit home to me. Mm. So the website that we use is um, kind of like a mixture between a learning management system and a Facebook kind of thing, where the class can is, is closed, and uh, the students can talk to each other, and they can talk to me, but they can't talk personally to each other. Does that make sense? So it's all still open forum. No, you wouldn't be able to see what oh, we're no, doing. Oh, no, between the invited participants. They yes. Can, yes, mm. all kind of. And I guess that's great because it's the way that people are communicating socially and they're using the same skills that they would use to interact with their friends to interact with their learning. Is mm. that kind of the idea? That's kind of the idea. I don't want them to spend time learning how to use the technology but learning how to communicate with using the technology and showing their knowledge of science. And so do you see great discussions evolving? Like there's some examples where you've, you can see two kids really kind of or, or you know, groups of children getting really involved in discussions yeah at, at times it's still something i'm pretty new with mm. so getting them uh in there is is sometimes a little bit difficult but they have to find a place in it uh currently it's like sunday before we're going back to school on monday and they have a big assignment that they have to do for me so at the moment there's a lot of discussion on you know what what exactly do you want in this how do i answer this question mm. um but i think it's really interesting to see because even a project that a teacher might think oh this is fairly simple um the kid you can kind of get a sense of, well, what are they struggling with? Mm. And for next year, I can adapt that uh, in such a way that, you know, I can say, oh, well, this wasn't that clear. Let's let's try something new. So I, I can see the um, the value here in what I would call the continuous survey for the teacher. I mean, the continuous survey Absolutely. of the students, their capabilities, as you say, what they're struggling with, what they, they'd be more interested in, mm. which may be everything but what you're teaching them, I guess, in some cases, <laughs> but what, what subject you teach. Um, but you know what, what I'm what I'm interested in is the the actual learning of this group. So not 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 okay. I'm going to adapt my classes next year so that those those yeah. next group coming through will benefit. I mean we, we've all got that kind of survey in place at universities mm-hmm. and so forth, and we we try and manage that. Or those of us who care try and manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, what about though the group you've got right now? I yeah. mean, so, say they say they're doing mathematics. How does this help with their actual learning of the curriculum that's in place? I mean, the the additional stuff, fantastic. I mean, geology, you know, totally mm-hmm. underrepresented in mm-hmm. schools, which is why it's suffering so bad at universities. Mm-hmm. But what about the core curriculum? How do you use this technology to enhance that learning? The core curriculum is, you know, I mean... There's certain things that we need to teach, but it's still very broad. Mm-hmm. And I love the use of social media because if I see something on, say, a TED Talk or in the newspaper or an interview, something that comes up, I can say, hey, guys, this is look at this. We're coming up on this unit or we studied this in the past. Mm-hmm. Let's go a little deeper in it and let's bring what is actually happening in science right to our classroom now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, the major affordances that technology offers I, us. I, it's yeah. funny. I was at my parents' house uh, a few weeks back and we are going through some old stuff in the shed and we found these whole encyclopedias and I was talking to my son about you know this is how we did our assignments <laughs> and, and, and thinking back you know it, it was just extraordinary how limited our, our access to knowledge was so mm. I, I suppose that's where you even just being able to access a you know you talk about volcanoes well here's a video of one mm. you know or yeah, all absolutely. these additional things because in your class I have to assume you have different types of learners and you, you mentioned that word differentiation before yes. that you have visual learners you have I don't know what the other types are I'm sure there's you know, <laughs> technical terms for these but um 
you know, presumably you can cater for all of them with these these technologies. I reckon we can. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, there was an ad on a tram, and it said, uh, when you smoke a cigarette, uh, you're inhaling 4,000 chemicals. Mm-hmm. And it had a test tube on it, so obviously chemistry, bad, okay, right there. And um, I took a picture of it, and I posted it, and I said to the kids, well, I wonder how many chemicals are in broccoli? Mm. Right. And w- what is the chemical? Is it something that's that's bad as as it is portrayed often in the media, mm. or is it something that your body actually needs? Mm. So I think mm. that those kind of um, discussions that crop up right away with the use of technology is something interesting to be explored. Mm. I think one of the things I like about the growing use of technology in this way is um, being able to access experts. Mm. Mm. And I've been involved in a couple of online projects um, as a as an as an expert, as a Hello. science expert, <laughs> but um, but um, amongst others, yeah, uh, such such that. You know, primary school children or high school students who are studying, you know, in my case, they're studying malaria, could actually interact online directly with someone mm. who is embedded in that research and in that world. Mm-hmm. And so, if they're studying, you know, a, a different, um, you know, whatever uh, they're studying in the sciences, they can actually directly online in a forum environment um, ask and post questions to a to an expert anywhere in the world. And I know that there are a lot of these new portals that are being developed that allow guest people to come on, mm. and so you can actually go, oh, we're going to across live to a scientist at CERN now because we're studying this in our classroom in regional Victoria. <laughs> I think it's amazing. And, and a great example of that style of that mentality is what NASA have done with the Hubble Space Telescope imagery mm-hmm. where everyone in the world can access these images free of charge mm-hmm. and, and use them in educational forum free of charge. I mean, this is something that in the past, you know, if you think about it, access to the actual data coming out of a, you know, a substantial scientific instrument was not something that people would allow. But NASA mm-hmm. Have, mm. have done that uh, with, with a lot of support from others. And so, you know, there's this incredible resource, and it's mm. that same idea of sharing information rather than holding it back, as you, you mm. said. Mm. Uh, Emily, I'm just interested to get back to that whole topic of women getting involved in, yes. in STEM mm. as well. Um, now, you've actually, I believe, have lived in Taiwan in the past, and you've spent some time in Boston last year as well. Absolutely. Do, do you find there's much cultural difference between those places in terms of how likely women are to get engaged in these sorts of subjects? Oh, wow, that's really interesting. When I was in Taiwan, I wasn't doing anything with science. Ah. Uh, I was <laughs> yeah, teaching yeah. English. Okay. Um, but I think, uh, can I just go back uh, mm-hmm. a little bit? Because uh, what you were saying, Crystal, uh, about you know getting young women uh, acquainted with, with female scientists and things like that, that's mm-hmm. one of the major issues in STEM, mm-hmm. is the fact that young women, uh, have, all the research says that they need these female role models mm-hmm. um, to sort of go on in their, in their sciences. Mm-hmm. So when you More than Marie Curie. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's oh, I've got I've got Marie Curie on my shoes. Um, <laughs> oh, she, on the other side. She, she, there's nothing wrong with Marie Curie. She's cool, right? But there's 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 more women in science than her. She is a bit old school. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, she's dead. It's good. It's good if you can find some live ones. I find too. Yeah. Not that the dead ones weren't great, but good to find some live ones. Update them. <laughs> well, it, it, in in that sort of frame, I mean, it's, it's another area where, as I've often said, with all of these issues around women in in science and promoting them doing it at high school and beyond. Um, we seem to know all the problems. They're all known knowns, and yet our, our sort of want to fix them is not quite matching, you know, our goal here. Is that, is that how you see it when you... I mean, you're in the school. You must see this. Cultural change is something that is really difficult, mm. uh, I think. And what we're dealing with is something that we do need to change about our culture. Mm. Um, the, one of the things that I find in school is that it's it's so hard to get the kids to sort of realize that 
they have to work to to do it mm. you know mm. and failure especially with young women you know failure is not a bad thing mm. uh some of my colleagues and i we say oh we, we want you to fail your way to success mm. and uh you know in the sort of culture that we have now of instant gratification it's really difficult to say you know what guys it takes time mm. to to learn mm. something and to be successful mm. especially some of the the you know to be fair some of the harder areas i mean mathematics takes a lot of practice a lot of time and a lot of dedication mm. it's not it's not something you can pick up quickly mm. And you find most professional mathematicians will tell stories of often how they struggled with it when they were in in high school. Absolutely, There's very few that I've come across is oh yeah, I was just bringing that from day one. That's <laughs> often not the case. In fact, most of them had other interests and ended mm-hmm. up in mathematics, you know, accidentally mm-hmm. because they they found that their skills changed as they got older and mm-hmm. became more appropriate to the field as with, they got older. With chemistry, I, mm. I I teach VCE chemistry, and I always tell my students when I was in year eleven, I didn't have to work very hard so the first chemistry test I did I failed Mm -hmm. and you know my kids sort of look at me like oh my god really (laughs) and um, I said yeah but let's look at it like actually what did I do I had to work at it that was the first time I actually had to work at something to do Mm -hmm. really well at it and I hope that um, the students take that away and sort of feel that too yeah indeed Uh, Emily it's been absolutely great having you on and we hope that uh, your work in this area continues and and keeps posted on on what we should be doing us old folks in this uh, social media area we we have lived doing our Twitter feed, so we're, you know we're on board. And I have to say that has changed the way we do the program mm. to a degree because every now and then Liv taps me on the shoulder and says, "Someone has tweeted this. Mm. You better fix it." <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and so it does bring a, a live element in, into the program that we didn't have before. So it's an important aspect of, of what we do, and it's and turned... it's fantastic to see people like yourselves championing the use of this technology in schools because a lot of the times schools are a, an environment that need cultural change, and I think that it takes champions like yourself in those environments to really lead the way. Absolutely. Okay. Emily Rochette from Melbourne Girls College, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. We're going to take a break now, folks, and we'll be back in a moment with another guest um, who's just had some paper on the cover of Nature. Very interesting work about the UK population. It will stun you. Three triple R. We have uh, Dr. Stephen Leslie in the studio. He's the group leader of statistical genetics at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. Now, you've been doing some amazing work on the UK population structure. I mean, first of all, why the UK? Why not Australia? (laughs) (laughs) So I started this work originally when I was living in the UK. Yep. Uh, So I did my PhD in the UK, and then I stayed on and and, uh, did a couple of postdocs there. Mm -hmm. This project was started by a famous geneticist called Sir Walter Bodmer mm-hmm. and another geneticist, uh, Peter Donnelly, who's actually Australian, and he's the head of the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics at Oxford, and he was my PhD supervisor. Uh, brilliant scientist, a brilliant Australian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the so the project started in Britain, and I was the sort of leading statistician on the, on the project, uh, brought in to work with Walter and Peter, and the project ran, or has been running for maybe seven or eight years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've finally got the, the major paper on the workout, uh, this year. Yep. But I was, um, 
I, I worked on the project for a year in Britain and then I moved to Australia and I've been working on the project for the last three years. Now let's talk through um, some of the basics here around population structure and so forth because what you've essentially been looking at is a genetic inheritance of the UK population. So wh- what do you mean by, when we talk about population structure, what are we talking about? Okay, so all natural populations of living creatures, mm-hmm. so it doesn't have to be humans, but today we're going to focus on humans, uh, exhibit genetic differences in their genetic ver- patterns of genetic variation across the regions that they um, that they live in. So you might be looking at birds in a forest and some birds might live on one side of a river and others on another side of the river. And you will just see, because they're not, for some reason, say, they're unable to randomly mate with each other, you'll just see random differences arising in one population that are diff- that don't exist in the other population okay. and so on. And these things can be very, very subtle. And studying these things is really important in human populations because of the effect that uh, geography may have on confounding genetic studies of disease. So one of the things you want to do when you do a disease study is you want to basically find a whole bunch of people who are cases, say people who have multiple sclerosis, for example, Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of people who are controls, people uh, who don't have multiple sclerosis, and then you want to sort of march along their gene... So you measure their genome at, say, uh, 500,000 places in the genome, and you want to walk along the genome looking at these places in the genome and look at differences in frequencies of the variance between the cases and the controls. And when you find a difference, you might think, aha, I found something that's associated with multiple sclerosis. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, if you don't control for geography, a lot of these differences just occur completely naturally in right. populations, just by chance most of the time, or sometimes by natural selection or due to migration... Or or something like that. Mm. And so when you march along the genome, you'll find all these differences if you haven't controlled for geography. So if you're a really stupid scientist, you might uh, <laughs> collect all your cases from northern Scotland and all your controls from southern Italy, and, <laughs> right. uh, and you'd find huge numbers of differences, yeah. and it's nothing to do with the disease. So, so that's why people are interested in human population structure, but also that can tell you a lot about uh, differences in ancestry populations, whether those populations have been isolated from each other or not, or whether there's been differential migration into those populations. Now, uh, I, in the UK, I mean, it's a small, insignificant island in the Northern <laughs> Hemisphere, but it has been a centre of activity for many thousands of years in terms of, you know, um, various groups either invading or populating the areas and, and so forth. What did you find when you started looking at that population? Because when, when I first think about it, I, I, would, I would suspect a degree of, you know, homogeneity across that relatively small island, but that's not what you found. So, but your first thoughts are very perceptive, in fact. So using standard methods, what you'll see is, you know, for the last 40 years or so, it's been pretty easy to to just look at the genetics of people, say look at 100,000 markers across the genome, and uh, and be able to say, well, this person is most likely from Africa and this person is most likely from China. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so separating groups... Uh, genetically at, say, a continental scale, yep. the, the mathematical methods have been out there for a long time. Mm. Uh, and you so could probably... You could, I assume you could almost do that visually as well. I mean, you know, the difference between someone whose origins are Chinese and someone who's African, to some degree we could probably pick, even if it's a, a few generations back. Mm. It's very, very subtle, in fact. Okay. So you need to use some quite sophisticated methods to do that. Uh, but... Yes, if you were looking at the correct markers, if you'd identified mm. the correct markers, you could see some kind of barcoding pattern okay. that would help you. But it is actually quite subtle. But the mathematical methods have been out there. So if you use standard methods and you look at 
Europe, you can generally see a pattern of differentiation which would allow you to separate countries at a very broad scale. So you couldn't be able, you wouldn't be able to tell if a person was from Portugal or Spain, right. but you'd be able to tell if a person was from Portugal or Russia. Gotcha. Mm. But uh, so previous studies have looked in the UK and have seen effectively nothing. So what they've seen is. Uh, potentially a separation between Orkney, which are islands to the north of the mainland of the UK, uh, and the rest of, of Britain. And they've also seen perhaps slight differences between Wales and the rest of Britain. Okay. But what we've been able to do is use a sophisticated sampling method, which I'm happy to describe in a moment, and sophisticated mathematics to enable us to actually pull Britain apart at a very, very fine scale. Mm. Sounds so, great. So there are like 60 million people living in Britain, roughly. Like, you can't sample all of them. How many people did you have to look at and how many samples did you have to get to kind of put this map together? And where did you get all that data from? (laughs) So that's why the project took so long. (laughs) (laughs) So the idea... So, I mean, there are two key things, the sampling strategy and the the mathematical methods. So the sampling strategy, what what we did was we we ended up sampling 2,039 individuals, to be precise. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what we did was we went looking for people, and I must say this wasn't me, uh, this all happened before I joined the project. It's a team effort. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what what we did was we we went out across the UK looking for people who had all four of their grandparents born Um. in a rural region in the same place. Yeah, great. And so the so idea really is... really representative of that area. Yes, of mm. course. And modern Britain has, you know, populations in cities from all over the mm. world mm. and all over Britain. Mm. And what was really fortunate was it tends to be older people that are interested in their uh, ancestry and, and so on. And mm. so uh, we we would mostly get people who are in their 60s as volunteers and the average year of birth of the grandparents was back in the 1880s so we're really when you think about it um any individual about a quarter of their genome comes from each of their grandparents so we're effectively sampling back in time uh into the 1880s and what you might hope is that during the industrial revolution in fact people move from the country into the cities so hopefully we're actually going even further back in time so we're really sampling dna back Back in back in the past, mm. that is very local to that region of Britain, pre pre seven forty seven. Yeah, and of those two thousand people, did you sequence their whole genome, or did you just look at specific bits? We looked at specific bits. So we looked at places in the genome called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are single letters, single bases in the genome, which are known to vary in the population, and. So we looked at about 500,000 of these markers across the genome. So they're spread evenly across the genome. So that's 500,000 out of 3 billion. Half a million places. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, wow. And if you look at those in the most simplistic ways or in ways that have been used in the past, even with this sophisticated sampling method, you'll see nothing. Yeah, because you've got like, you've got half a million bits of information per person and you've got over 2,000 people in the study. That's right. So you need some pretty powerful maths to come to terms with that. Yeah. And so then, so what is it, so when you put it all together, like, what, what can you now say? So what we can say, so the methods, just to be at a very, very high level, basically look at patterns of shared ancestry between the people within Britain. So we take any pair of people in Britain and we look at the... the well, we take one person out, for example. Mm-hmm. So we've got the 2039, we take one out, and we look at the patterns of shared ancestry of parts of their genome with every other individual in the sample, wow. and we kind of keep a score for how often they copy from everybody else mm-hmm. in the genome, who's their most... Their, their closest ancestor, effectively. 
Uh, and we do that, and then we put that person back in and take the next person out and so on. And so we get this sort of summary of their patterns of variation. And then what we can do is we can cluster them based on this genetic information alone. Mm. And then, so we've used no information about geography at all, and we end up clustering them into, well, it turns out for our study, um, 53 groups. Now, those, a lot of those groups that are at the very finer scale are more likely not relating to population structure, but perhaps, you know, close family or something like that. Though we tried to control for all of that, obviously. Uh, but what you can then do is you can take those 53 groups and you can look at the two groups that are most similar to each other from there and merge them. And now we've got 52 groups and then merge the two closest from those 52. So we've got 51 and so on. And we build a tree up until we've got two groups that are completely differentiated. And then what we can do is we can look at those two groups and we can plot them on a map and we can say, do these groups actually reflect geography or not? Mm. And the answer is yes amazingly. So the first group we see is we separate Orkney, the islands to the north of Scotland, from the rest of the UK perfectly. Yep. So you see that differentiation. Now that had been seen before. Yep. We then, uh, the next split is Wales. So we separate Wales from the rest of the UK. The next split, really interestingly, is then a separation of North Wales from South Wales. Okay. So that tells you that and under our model... And they're just next to each other. Yeah. That's exactly right. Mm. So that tells you that North Wales and South Wales, under our model at least, are more different to each other mm. than Scotland and England. Wow. So that's, I think, a really major thing that we've found. So what were the most surprising things to come out? Like, What were, what were some of the key things that you thought, wow, like, and, and what has that really meant for, for history and archaeology? So uh, I think the first most surprising thing that we've found is that we can separate Britain into these tiny pieces. Yeah. So nobody had, not, mm. had been able to see this before. Mm. So, for example, we can now separate out the counties of Devon and Cornwall, people who are in just using genetics alone, mm. uh, and we almost perfectly pick out the county boundary between Devon and Cornwall. <laughs> we can separate <laughs> Devon from the rest of, of, mm. of England. And so we, get this, we can separate the Northern Islands of Orkney from the Southern Islands of Orkney, mm-hmm. and we can separate the North of England from the rest of England and so on. So we can pull apart Britain into these incredibly small groups. So if someone comes up to you and says, my four grandparents were born in in Britain, and if I give you my DNA, can you tell me where I'm from? We could do some form of analysis like that. So obviously their four grandparents won't come from exactly the same place, but what we could do is we could effectively paint their genome and look at, you know, which part of their genome comes from which part of Britain and kind of smear them across a map somehow. But it's, I mean, this this has been published as a cover article for Nature, which mm-hmm. if you haven't heard of it, folks, it's a pretty decent <laughs> journal in the world, um, based in Britain um, as well. But um, th- this will presumably uh, set in motion a whole lot of changes in archaeology and in, in other areas where this sort of information around movements of populations just hasn't been available. I mean, it's it's. I mean, the impact beyond the we now know has to be pretty extraordinary. Yeah, so obviously we tested what we'd seen against known things in archaeology. So mm. there were archaeologists who were part of the project and so on. Uh, and so uh, one of the major findings... So that first analysis that I described, we get this clustering of Britain, and one of the things that you notice is that there's this amazing congruence between the clusters we see and sort of ancient tribal groupings uh, across Britain that existed mm. uh, prior to the, the Romans arriving in Britain. But we also see this... One thing that's really amazing is that we see this part... The, the bulk of England 
never separates. And that right. shows you that it's basically genetic, genetically homogenous. Uh, and so we wanted to investigate, why is this so? If we can separate Devon from Cornwall, why can't we separate Kent from East Anglia? So they must be really homogenous. And what we thought, what we first noticed was that, um, that this, this group in, in the bulk of England actually seemed to match the region of settlement of the Saxons. And so we decided we wanted to see, well, can we learn something about migration of, of people into Britain? So obviously most of the genetic dis- differences that we see are due to isolation or, or yeah. that sort of thing, but some of it will be due to, due to, to migration. So what we did was we did a similar clustering analysis on 6,000 samples from Europe, and those 6,000 people weren't ascertained in the same way, so we didn't have four grandparents in the same place. They were actually um, study samples in a disease study so they're just people who turned up in a hospital somewhere but we clustered them and so we could separate out europe really beautifully actually so we got this fine scale structure through norway and denmark and down through germany and so on and then we used the same kind of sharing idea but this time we took all the groups in britain and we looked at on average how much do they share their dna with all these different groups throughout western europe and then you can kind of create a profile of, say, Cornwall. We can look at Cornwall. We can say, well, they share, on average, within our analysis, say, 30% of their ancestry with a northern French group and 20% of their ancestry with a southern French group and so on. And then we can look and see, well, what does that tell us about patterns of migration into Britain? So I think the most important archaeological finding of our work is that there's an open debate in, in British archaeology and history at the moment as to whether... Um, whether the Saxons actually completely replaced the existing mm. British population. Right, yeah. Mm. So when they came in, everything changes. The language changes completely, the crops that were planted change, the place names change, and really, really importantly, there's a massive backward step in technology, like almost a thousand-year backward step in technology. Mm. So the ancient British had good technology and the Germans didn't. Mm. Uh, and so the thought... It's amazing they didn't kind of know the step. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wheel. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what then? Uh, so, so the archaeologists, many archaeologists, not all, but it's an open debate in British archaeology. Many archaeologists interpret this as a, as a form of genocide. Mm. So, the Saxons came in and either killed all the British people, the ancient British people that were there, or pushed them out to the fringes into Wales and Cornwall and Scotland and and so on. And so, what our analysis showed was, in fact, yes, we can detect the movement of the Saxons into Britain. We can see DNA which comes from northern Germany. Uh, where that is the, the the most shared ancestry for a number of the, the clusters in, our, in Britain, and we can see that that DNA is only shared with clusters in the Saxon regions of Britain, so there's none of it in Wales and virtually none of it in Scotland and so on. Uh, so we can identify the movement, what we see as the movement of the Saxon people into Britain, but crucially we can then estimate the uh, proportion of Saxon ancestry in those parts of Britain. And even in the group with the most Saxon ancestry, it's between 10 and 40% Saxon ancestry at, mo- at most half almost certainly much, much less, that kind of puts that debate to rest. Yeah. Mm. We've really answered it, and we've said, no, the Saxons came in and they, they mixed with the existing population rather than destroying them or pushing them out. Mm. Look, it's, it's incredible work, and, I mean, there's, there's a lot of other countries in the world that I suspect you'll be applying this to. Mm. Um, Dr Stephen Leslie, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about this, and um, the UK will never be the same again. <laughs> Thank you. And it's, I just think it's great when we teach them something from the colonies. <laughs>
you know, not just about cricket, but other things too. Um, Dr. Stephen Leslie is a group leader from the statistical genetics um, part of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and an honorary fellow in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Melbourne. We're almost out of time. Now, Dr. Crystal, you wanted to mention the anti-vaccination stuff that's come out this week. Uh, yes. So um, there has been an, uh, a suggestion that uh, parents who are conscientious objectors to vaccination will no longer be eligible for certain tax concessions and benefits. So parents who refuse to vaccinate their kids will miss out. Um, and so, and, and which has raised some interesting debates, but I, I think has generally said that um, that as a society we value vaccination. Mm. And um, I think it's a really strong statement to make. Well, I think we also value the safety of um, newborns who have not yet been vaccinated or children who have uh, immune-suppressed systems in place because they've got leukaemia or any other um, similar disease Mm. that can't rely on... um, Well, have to rely on everyone else being vaccinated. So it's not about you and your child as much as it is about those around you. Mm -hmm. So I have to say it's it's a debate that I have a very strong view on. In fact, I don't think it's a debate. Yeah. Well, well I, I don't think you can enforce a medical procedure, but I think you can say that if you're uh, if you're no. not going to uh, participate in this benefit to society, that there are other benefits that you will no longer be um, able to access. Like our medical system. That could be one. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We've had a pretty big show today. It's been a lot of fun. Um, we will talk to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere, and uh, have a good Sunday, folks, if you haven't already had one. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.